I want to tell you what a blessing it is to have a singing congregation as a pastor. I've I've served a number in my day, and most most sing a little. But uh, St. Paul, you've always been, uh, you you punch above your weight class, yeah? Uh, For the number that are here, uh, the the sound is always more than you would think. And uh, thank you for, for being that. If you're nervous about singing yourself still, don't worry about it. It's okay. Um, the, the way you get good at singing is you start singing poorly, and then over time, you just get better when you do it. Like, like most things, you start it and you get better at it. But if you can't sing, you can always read the words. Because the value of the singing is, is not the music. I know the music's nice. I know Caleb's he's great back there. But the value is the words that are there about Jesus. Okay, so words about Jesus, Isaiah chapter 10. That's our goal today, uh, to put chapter 10 into the story that we've been dealing with for eight, nine weeks now, uh, which is really the story of Hezekiah, okay? So to understand Isaiah, you got to know who King Hezekiah is. You kind of got to know who his father is. And you got to know what happened to him with the king of Assyria and the Rabshakeh of Assyria at the gates of Jerusalem. That's in chapters 37, 38, and 39 of the book, Isaiah. And that's why it's maybe tough when you just open your Bible and try to read Isaiah. You get to chapter 10 and you're kind of like, what is going on? I saw like three verses about Emmanuel and that kind of makes sense because that's about Christmas. But the rest of it, where is it coming from? And so our goal has been to to open that door a little bit for you uh, over the last couple of months. And I I, I hope that that door has begun to be open. It can kind of show you how reading the Bible isn't always the same thing. It's one thing to open the Gospel of Matthew and read it. It's another thing to open Haggai and just dive in. And so since I'm on a quest to get you to read the Bible more in your life, I want to expose you to some of the difficulty that Isaiah brings so that you don't worry about it so much, basically. And there's two things you can do with that. You can just realize you're going to read passages that don't make any sense. You just read them anyway. It's just kind of go right on through. It's sort of how the Proverbs starts. Like, what does that mean? I don't know. I'll keep going. Three years later, you're like, I know what that means. Yeah. So, so you could just keep going, right? Or you can be selective in your reading. You can read the books that you know how to read over and over again. And the idea that that would somehow be a failure is, is kind of stupid, actually. If all you did for the next three years was read the Gospel of Matthew, You'd know the gospel of Matthew so well. You think that you wouldn't know the word of God then just because you hadn't learned about Hezekiah yet? No, you'd be a master at Matthew. So you can specialize is what I'm saying. And don't be afraid to do that. If Isaiah is not your cup of tea, then don't start with Isaiah. Start somewhere and stay there. Yeah, Somewhere you'll go back to. Keep building on that foundation. Now, maybe Isaiah is your cup of tea, but you need the history. The history of Hezekiah, the king of Judah, who's the son of Ahaz, the son of Jotham. Jotham's a good king. He's got things going well at the temple, but also society is doing well. People are wealthy. And when that happens, they tend to forget their God. That's exactly what happens is their mouths are boasting of Jesus, but they don't have any faith in their hearts. And so God sends them Jotham's son, Ahaz. Ahaz is a wicked king. He then tears down the good things in the temple, replaces them with bad things, some of the worst idolatry that ever happens in Jerusalem at all. And God 
begins to send punishments upon him, namely two kings from north of him, uh, Rezin of Damascus and Pekah of Samaria. Do you remember these names, right? Uh, basically the country of Syria and the country of northern Israel. They come and they begin to attack the northern regions of Ahaz's kingdom. And Ahaz decides to reach out to an even greater power, the world kingdom of the time, the empire that runs everything except for maybe China, but they get pretty close. They're like into, into India, okay? That's how big Assyria is. He sends, Ahaz sends to Assyria, says, come help me knock off these two little guys who are bothering me from the north, right? Remember this? This is the Isaiah chapter 7 stuff. And uh, God comes in Isaiah's person to Ahaz and says, you don't need any help. Uh, ask for a sign, and I'll prove to you, you don't need any help, and you won't ask for a sign. So uh, God says, fine, the sign will be the virgin will conceive and bear a son. And also the king of Assyria, the one you're asking for help from, he's going to come and destroy you. And although that won't entirely happen during Ahaz's life, it does come to pass during the life of his son, Hezekiah, who has taken the throne at a time when Assyria is just taking peace after peace after peace of Judah. And as the story goes, again, they will get all the way to the gates of Jerusalem. They will set up shop there with their army. They will call out to the people how they're going to make them all eat their own feces if they don't throw Hezekiah over the wall and open the gates. And Hezekiah is in the temple talking to Isaiah, saying, what should I do? Isaiah is saying, call on the name of Jesus. Hezekiah says, okay, I'll call on the name of Jesus. And that night, an angel army destroys the Assyrian troops, sends them skirting away. Some of them do survive. They get back to where the king, taken with Pileser III, is camped a little ways to the west. He, though, hears rumor of a problem back home, goes back home with all the army, leaving Judah, even what he conquered free in his wake behind him. And when he gets back to the Nineveh, the capital of Assyria, he's murdered by his own sons, who then are chased off as traitors, and the whole empire collapses in on itself over the next couple of years. Babylon will be the next world power to arise. Okay, that's the story going on in the book of Isaiah. And chapter 10 begins with what was going on in chapter 9, in which God is saying to Jerusalem and Judah, this is going to happen whether you like it or not. Assyria is going to come from where they are to your gates, destroying everything up to that point, whether you like it or not. And you deserve it. And for all the wrath that I pour out on you, I still want to pour out more wrath on you because you have not believed. Now, again, this is a continuation of chapter 9. Did I tell you yet, page 574 in your pew Bible, to try to find your way there? That's where chapter 10 starts. Um, but maybe start looking at chapter 9, verse 8. And this is also one of the difficult things about any part of the Bible, but especially the prophets. Um, they don't always have the chapter breaks where they should be. Sometimes there's like three chapters in one chapter, not lengthwise, but idea-wise, right? And sometimes one chapter runs, or one idea, runs a chapter and a half. So what's happening here is you have this section in which God is saying to Judah, I'm going to punish you for your sins, that really starts in chapter 9, verse 8, and it lists a whole bunch of things that God is going to do. And there's a refrain that shows up as it gets worse and worse, this punishment. You can see that refrain in verse 12, at the bottom half of verse 12. For all this, his anger has not turned away, and his hand is stretched out still. You can see it in verse 17, the very last 
thing on the page. For all this, his anger has not turned away, and his hand is stretched out still. Now, if you turn the page and jump to chapter 10, verse 4, at the bottom of verse 4, you'll see it again. For all this, his anger has not turned away, and his hand is outstretched still. End of the story, right? End of the chapter, end of the segment. And then from verse uh, 5 and on, my eyesight can't read that, 5. From verse 5 and on, we have a new idea, okay? So we're going to look at just verses 1 through 4 in this context of God's telling Judah, Assyria is coming, there's nothing you can do about it. And he says, here's why, right? Here are the reasons you're being punished. Woe to those who decree iniquitous decrees and the writers who keep writing oppression to turn aside the needy from justice and to rob the poor of my people of their right, that widows may be their spoil and that they may make the fatherless their prey. All right. Now, I'm not going to say that the omnibus bill passed by the United States Senate and House is exactly this, but it's golly is it awful close. Elite power deciding it's going to do whatever it wants to do, no matter who of the little guys might get hurt, say a widow on a fixed income who this inflation of 8% can't really survive for another 10 years like that. Well, whatever, we'll send $48 billion to some other country to protect its borders. Now, I don't really care that much about American politics. I'm on, I'm on the down from it. I'm really walking away from it. What I care about is American virtue, and we don't got any. We got liars and thieves. And it's not unlike many other times in history. Just like Judah and Jerusalem, where the, the, the lawmakers are going to make laws that are not going to help. They're just going to hurt. Or they're going to ignore laws that they shouldn't ignore. Like, from what I've heard, uh, the mayor of Rockford ignoring some of the building code regulations that have allowed an abortion clinic to open on Auburn. Well, you know, we'll just, we'll just look the other way. It's not that. It's just a paperwork. You know? So again, uh, leaders who are lawless is the problem. And whatever you want to extrapolate from that to what, what God's view of America is right now, the text is talking about how this, you know, preying on the fatherless and the widow, uh, this leads to destruction. God gets angry about this. Verse 3, so what will you do in the day of punishment, in the ruin that will come from afar? Are, are you ready for it? You're going to stop it? Huh? To whom will you flee for help? And where will you leave your wealth? Guys, what a question, yeah? What good is all of the stuff when you got to flee from troops who are coming towards you? What good is it? Yeah. How does it protect you? Or let's put this in very direct spiritual terms. What good is it when you die? All the stuff, all the things. You stored it all up. You, it's all, it's amazing. You, you, you spent your whole life chasing it. What good is it? Yeah. And, and that's his question. He really wants us to ask that. What good is mammon, especially if you've lost God's blessing, right? if you've lost the gift? Verse 4, nothing remains but to crouch among the prisoners or fall among the slain. And again, I mean, golly, harsh words for Judah. He's going to come with an army and actually kill people. That's how mad he is. 
For all this, his anger is not turned away and his hand is outstretched still. That leaves us with Judah at a brink, right? It's all but the end of the southern kingdom. However, we know that God has promised already he will not completely destroy them, but for the sake of David, his servant, which is to say that Jesus might be born a Jew to die for us for the sins of the world, he will save Jerusalem. And that means he won't let Assyria, the country he's punishing them with, actually take Jerusalem. In fact, right as Assyria is at the gates of Jerusalem, Assyria is going to be thinking so much about how cool and awesome and powerful Assyria is that Assyria is going to boast in God's sight that they did this. That they were the ones who punished Judah. That it was their idea. That they had the power. And God's going to turn on them and say, oh, you think so, do you? You think I didn't do this? You think you did this? Well, let me show you what I can do then. Right? And that's what this next section is going to be about. Right? That Assyria is going to be chopped down like a tree because of its arrogance. All right. So here we go. Uh, chapter 10, verse 5. Woe to Assyria. The rod of my anger, right? I've been using them. I've been using Assyria. They're my rod. I'm striking Judah with them, but woe, woe to them. The staff in their hands is my fury, right? That's all their power. It's God's power. Against a godless nation, I send him, right? Well, who's that? That's Judah. (laughs) Um, And against the people of my wrath, I command him. But the point being that Assyria isn't doing this because they figured it out. They're not so amazing, Rather, God has enabled them to do this because he's mad at Judah. To take spoil and seize plunder and to tread them down like the mire of the streets. But he, this is the king of Assyria, does not so intend. It's an interesting little movement here, right? So God says, Assyria is my tool that I'm using to punish Judah. But Assyria doesn't think he's my tool. He doesn't intend to be punishing Judah because of their wickedness in the name of Jesus. He, that's not what he is at all. He does not so intend, and his heart does not think. He doesn't think he's God's tool. But it is in his heart to destroy and to cut off nations, not a few. That is, rather than Assyria wanting to be God's tool, they just want to conquer. That's a hard one to imagine, by the way. You try that. Uh, what's it like to just decide... I think I'm going to conquer my neighbor and then do it and have no one stop you and then conquer a few more neighbors, maybe conquer the next town. We don't think this way, right? We do not think this way at all. I don't even know how to think that way, but that's kind of the world that they were in. And maybe indeed that world is still here in ways we just don't see. That's maybe a longer conversation, but see here then that the king of Assyria, all he wants is just to take more for himself. Not to serve God. And so he's not getting off light. Now, verse 9, 10, and 11, 8 as well, are like a little monologue of the king of Assyria. Right? So we've talked about the king of Assyria, how arrogant he is. And now here he is on stage. He's going to talk about himself. Right? Uh, it says, he says, are not all my commanders kings? Is not Kalno like Carchemish? Is not Hamath like Arpad? Is not Samaria like Damascus? As my hand has reached to the kingdoms of the idols whose carved images were greater than those of Jerusalem and Samaria, shall I not do to Jerusalem and her idols as I have done to Samaria and her images? 
exit the king. Okay. Well, what do you, what do you mean? That was that's kind of a weird thing to say. Had a lot of names in it, right? Um, we'll kind of take that one bit at a time here. Are not all my commanders kings? What he's saying is, when I go to my general staff or my army, I conquered that guy, I conquered that guy, I conquered that guy. They're now my staff. They're helping me conquer. So these guys who were so boss, they serve me now. Uh, so, so who are Jerusalem and Samaria? Right? And is not Calno like Carchemish? Aren't these great kingdoms that I took? Kingdoms that I took? They're now mine. Is not Hamath like Arpad? I took both of them too. They tried to stop me, but I'm in charge now. Is not Samaria like Damascus? That is so. Am I not going to come and take Rezin, king of Samaria, or king of, excuse me, king of Syria, and Pekah, uh, king of Israel? Am I not going to come and take them and make them just like everybody else? As my hand, verse 16, excuse me, verse 10, as my hand has reached to the kingdoms of the idols, whose carved images were greater than those of Jerusalem and Samaria, which is to say if you went to the temple in Kalna or Carchemish or Arpad, the gods and the mythologies that they had of the great power and strength of their idols seemed a bigger deal than the Jerusalem temple to the king of Assyria. And so since their idols weren't able, their gods weren't able to stop me, why would the idol of Jerusalem, because he doesn't believe God's really there, why would the idol of Jerusalem not be also just like what I've done to Samaria? All of that is, he says in his heart, I'm doing this, no gods can stop me. Verse 12 now kind of gets us back to Isaiah's voice. He tells us what's going on. When the Lord has finished all his work on Mount Zion and Jerusalem, that is when he's used Assyria to punish Judah, he will punish the speech of the arrogant heart of the king of Assyria and the boastful look in his eyes. So once God's done what he needs to do to his people to get them to repent, the rod he uses, which is the world kingdom, the power of the devil even, he uses that rod, he lets it go upon the people, and then as soon as he's got it where he wants it to be, he smashes that snake into the dust. See all of this through the cross. This is really not about Hezekiah and Jerusalem. This is about fallen redemption. This is the story always told again and again, that God sent us out of the Garden of Eden for the sin. We got what we deserved. We're feeling the pain. Our bones ache. Our lives creak. And then we die. But Jesus has entered into all of this in order to have that death. And the moment, the moment that it is completed, that the devil is used as the tool to kill Jesus, God then can turn back on the devil and say, I'm looting your house now. I'm taking all these people with me. I just bought them from you. And you're going into the fire. Yeah. So see that behind all of this. See the boastful look in his eyes being about the devil himself, who then is the God of wicked men. And so also, men with boastful eyes, you always want to, well, uh, see that they're wicked. And if that means recognizing that you got a plank in your own eye, well then, good on you, because you should. Get that plank out of your eye. Desire not to have a boastful eye. Ask God to keep you wise. Yeah, But the world's not going to be wise, and we need to expect God's going to punish the fool for his folly. 
Because the fool says stuff like the king of Assyria says. And here it is again in verse 13 and 14. More of the king of Assyria is back on stage telling you how great he is. By the strength of my hand, I have done it. Now, I'm just going to pause right there. It's the king of Assyria with all his empire. But just go back to where you were this morning as you're getting ready to leave your house. And let that thought go through your head as if it were your thought as you're walking out the door from your castle. By the strength of my hand, I have done it. Now, I'm having you imagine that because I know inside of you, are like, oh, that's a bad thing to say. Yeah, it is. So why do you worry so much about tomorrow as if by the strength of your hand, you will do it? That's a good thing to see. Yeah. He says, by the strength of my hand, I have done it. And by my wisdom, I have understanding. I remove the boundaries of peoples and plunder their treasuries. Like a bull, I bring down those who sit on thrones. Right again, I came, I saw, I conquered. I'm the coolest empire there ever was. Nobody can stop me. I'm like a raging bull, rock on. Okay, he's just really proud, right? Really proud. Uh, My hand has found like a nest the wealth of the people. So the idea here is he's out walking in the morning like a farmer and he finds a bird's nest, right? And what's the bird going to do to stop him from getting the eggs? That's what this king of Assyria has done to everything he wants. He sees it, he takes it, right? Uh, And as one who gathers eggs that have been forsaken, so I have gathered all the earth. That's what he says about himself. And there was none that moved a wing or opened the mouth or chirped. Again, I'm God. (laughs) No, he doesn't necessarily think he's God, but... But he is. He's blessed by God in such a way that no one can stand against him. And the last thing he's going to do is turn around and say, thank you, Jesus. He doesn't see that. He just sees himself. And now, we heard this read a moment ago. It's got some context now. Shall the axe boast over him who hews with it, right? The king of Assyria is a tool. He's a tool, like an axe that you use to cut some wood. You set it down, the axe is like, man, I was good. You see all that work I did? No, no, the axe can't, can't say that. The axe has to say, thank you for using me. I would have laid on the ground and done nothing if you hadn't come along and picked me up. A tool is only as valuable as its master. And so God is saying to the king of Assyria and for us in his hearing that we might learn, don't think you're above your master. Yeah. Shall the axe boast over him who hews with it or the saw magnify itself against him who wields it? As if a rod should wield him who lifts it, right? Like you pick up a staff to fight off some enemy and the staff wields you. No, no, you wield the staff. As if the staff should lift him up who is not wood. The staff's just wood. It can't lift a human. The human lifts the staff. Okay, well, the staff is the king of Assyria, the empire, the world kingdom, and God is the one in charge. Why should the one who is in charge, listen to the nonsense of the tool shouting about how great it is. Therefore, what's going to happen because of this? Therefore, verse 16, the Lord God of hosts will send a wasting sickness upon his stout warriors. Not God's stout warriors, but the king of Assyria's stout warriors. And under his glory, the king of Assyria's glory, a burning will be kindled like the burning of a fire. So this is a setup here. The king of Assyria has an army. I'm going to destroy the army. It'll feel like fire. It'll feel like sickness. 
Verse 17, the light of Israel will become a fire. That's God. God's the light of Israel, right? God is the one who's in charge. He will become a fire and his holy one. Think of that as Jesus, a flame, and it will burn and devour his thorns and briars in one day. Again, the king of Assyria, a forest filled with thorns and briars. And in a single day, it's going to be all burned up because God's going to decide he's had enough. Verse 18, the glory of his forest. Think of the forest as the army. The glory of his forest and of his fruitful land, the Lord will destroy both soul and body. And it will be as when a sick man wastes away. The remnant of the trees of his forest will be so few that a child can write them down. So again, the hosts of Assyria are gathered outside the gates of Jerusalem. Hezekiah is inside the temple praying according to the word of Isaiah. And God sends an angel army out to just destroy in a single night the vast majority of that army. How do he do it? Well, it would seem with fire and sickness. It wasn't, it wasn't a fun place to be. And like a forest filled with trees that gets overrun by a fire, maybe there's one or two sticking around. There's, there's a few troops kind of running with their tails between their legs back out of way, but it's enough that you can count them on your fingers. Like a child would know. Oh, there goes three guys. They got away. But that's all that's left of his great army. That's what God's going to do, he says. Now, verse 20, we have a little bit of a, a shift again back to Isaiah explaining this. What does it mean now? In that day, the remnant of Israel and the survivors of the house of Jacob will no more lean on him who struck them, but will lean on the Lord, the Holy One of Israel, in truth. Remember, Ahaz asked Assyria to come. The king of Judah asked this enemy to come. So he was leaning on someone who then struck him. And God says, after he lets this happen and then punishes the one who strikes, that the remnant of believers that remain in Jerusalem will stop looking to other foreign powers to save them and will trust in their God again, which in our language means they'll trust in Jesus again. They'll believe that Jesus has got it all under control. And I tell you, that's some very hopeful gospel right there. That's some good news about who your God is to you right now. I stepped out on the limb a little bit earlier with the political talk. But I want you to see this. No matter what happens, worst conspiracy you can imagine, collapse of the empire that is the United States, all the way down to you go home and you, you get sick today and you die in a couple of days. All the way down to you, you, get, you go home and you continue to battle that depression that you can't get over. Or you go home and you continue to struggle with that pain that's been around for so long and you can never let go of. All of that is the rod of God's anger, which this story teaches you to see as his stilling you so that you can believe he's got it under control. He's got your salvation well in hand. There's nothing going on that he hasn't planned to strengthen you. And the flesh inside of you says, but what about this and what about that that I don't want to have to? And the answer from the Bible remains, it's to strengthen you. And you're like, but, but, but. And he's like, yeah, you just don't believe it. Believe it, it's to strengthen you. For all of this, his hand was outstretched, not to strike you unto hell, but to 
Well, to wound you and then heal you, maybe with the wound being the healing itself. I could go on and on about that verse and that idea. It's so potent for your daily walk. Uh, verse 21 is the similar concept. Uh, a remnant will return. Right? God is going to create faith. That's what he's doing. No matter what's going on, you can know he's creating faith in his faithful. That's what he's doing all the time. A remnant will return, the remnant of Jacob, to the mighty God. Right? He's bringing people back to faith through the trial. Verse 22. For though your people Israel be as the sand of the sea, only a remnant of them will return. Destruction is decreed, overflowing with righteousness. For the Lord God of hosts will make a full end as decreed in the midst of all the earth. Okay, we're going to take all of that apart here too. It's the same idea, but it's kind of the dark side of it, which begins with, okay, if there's going to be a remnant, that means those that are left after the rest is gone, right? And so Judah will have a remnant, people who come to faith after Assyria, or well, before Assyria is destroyed. So they'll see that salvation take place before their eyes, but that remnant will be small. Right? So if Israel, its population, was one sand on the beach for every person, only a handful is going to remain after God chastens them. And there's nothing they can do to stop this. Destruction is decreed. It's going to happen. Overflowing with righteousness. It's a good thing that it's going to happen. Now, this is easiest to apply to yourself when you think about it as talking about hell. Hell is decreed. The Jesus Christ shall overflow with the righteousness of God and his wrath in eternal fire with the devil and all his angels. You can't stop it. And that you want to is weird if you believe in God, since it's his idea and he says it's righteous. And a remnant, that's you, believe in him and actually won't get that punishment. It's all to drive you back to him. But it remains. Verse 23, again, the Lord of God of hosts, he'll make a full end as decreed in the midst of the earth. I mean, you, could, you could hear that as talking about the end of the world. It's, it's talking about the end of Jerusalem, but the end of Jerusalem is a picture of the end of the world. Yeah? Destruction is decreed. You can walk through the rest of this life certain that this life's going to perish. You're going to die. Everything you buy is going to grow old and wear out and get thrown away eventually. People are going to forget your name. Probably not your kids. Probably not your kids. Uh, probably not your grandkids. Probably your great-grandkids. Maybe not. Definitely your great-great-grandkids. Eh, forgotten. Right? You could know this. It, it, destruction is decreed. Like, no, no need to grieve over it. In fact, you can learn to see past it since this destruction will not be an end to you. But you will walk through this fire as one redeemed and bought by Christ the crucified. All right. Uh, coming back to the text here. I don't want to go too far astray. Uh, therefore, verse 24, thus says the Lord God of hosts, O my people who dwell in Zion, be not afraid of the Assyrians when they strike with the rod and lift up their staff against you as the Egyptians did. Right? Look, you're going to get sucker punched in the face. Don't worry about it. You're going to come through it okay. That's God's message to you about this life, about the experience of this world. 
it's going to hit you again and again and again. But it hit Jesus with all that it could, and he didn't stay dead. You're in him. So don't fear when it comes. No need to. Just wasting your energy. Just wasting your energy. For in a very little while, my fury will come to an end, he says. And my anger will be directed to their destruction, right? Soon after the chastening, God will attack your enemies. So hang in there. And the Lord of hosts, verse 26, will wield against them a whip as when he struck Midian at the rock of Oreb. And as his staff will be over the sea, and he will lift it up as he did in Egypt. Again, very narrow that he is going to destroy the, the army of Assyria the way that Gideon destroyed the armies of Midian in the book of Judges. It's using that picture. Remember Gideon with his 300 men. It doesn't look like he can win at all. And he just routes them for days, right? Um, and then captures these two kings, Oreb and Zeb. Okay, so it mentioned it like the day at the Rock of Oreb. The Rock of Oreb is where they cut Oreb's head off. And Zeb was, was killed similarly at Zeb's wine press. And these are places that really exist in history that are a picture of what God is going to do to all of his enemies, which means all of your enemies. And that it is only a matter of time until that vindication, which he has achieved defeating your greatest enemy, death and the devil on the cross, it's only a matter of time until that is experienced by you. And if you experience it now by the knowledge of it, which changes you to be different from the fools in the world, wander around, worship in the world power like it's the only hope that they have. Huh? The lifting up of the rod against Egypt, same idea, 10 plagues sent against Egypt to bring about the exodus, right? God's going to fight for you like he did of old is the promise. Verse 27, and in that day, his burden will depart from your shoulder. That's the king of Assyria's burden, like the threat of the world kingdom. Will depart from your shoulder, his yoke from your neck, and the yoke will be broken because of uh, the fat. There, the Hebrew there is a little uncertain, even what that means, the fat part. But the idea is, first, Assyria will almost destroy Judah, but won't be able to because God's going to send them away. Second, the world looks like it's all fallen apart, but Jesus has risen from the dead and has defeated every world kingdom that will ever be. Finally, your own personal life is going to walk either into the end of the world or the end of your days in the grave, and yet you're going to walk through that because God is with you to make you alive forevermore. No more yoke, no more burden, every tear wiped away. From your eyes. Now, there's a shift here though, okay? So I just ended with kind of the, the good news. And there's good news at the end of these last verses, but you kind of got to get in the commercial with me a little bit. Or the, it's really not a commercial. It's more like a short movie. Um, but it is. It, it's a commercial for the destruction of Judah to get you to want to be part of the Assyrian army, right? You know, go army. Come join us. It's going to describe how the army is moving to conquer place after place after place by, for the listener in Jerusalem, these being places you know well, and it keeps getting closer and closer to your home. Yeah? So if you can imagine, the army is at Perryville Road. Oh my goodness, they've made it to Mulford now. Look, they're crossing Alpine. They're at the Rock River. They're marching up Kilburn. They're right outside where Kilburn meets Springfield. 
And then the text is going to be good news after that, right? But again, hear this as I read it out loud. The names aren't going to make any sense. But hear it as the marching army is passing town after town after town, all about 30 miles from where they start to get into Jerusalem. And they start the first place. uh, What is it there? Eth is the border, the northern border of Benjamin which at this time is part of the southern kingdom, right? So it's starting at the border of the kingdom and it's marching straight into Jerusalem itself, right? Tremble and quail before Assyria as they come. He has come to Aeth. He has passed through Migran at Michmash. He stores his baggage. That means he leaves behind the servants who can't fight. Only fighting men go forward now. They have crossed over the pass. At Geba, they lodge for the night. Rama trembles. Gibeah of Saul has fled. People are leaving their houses and their animals behind as they try to get away, right? Cry aloud, O daughter of Galim, right? Pray and weep and mourn, young people. Uh, Give attention, O Laisha, O poor Ananath. Madmina is in flight. The inhabitants of Gibeon flee for safety. This very day, he, as the king and his army, will halt at Nob. He, the king will shake his fist at the mount of the daughter of Zion, the hill of Jerusalem, right? So by that last point, the army is there, Jerusalem's right there, and the king's ready to take it. Uh Verse 33, behold, the Lord God of hosts will lop the boughs with terrifying power. So now imagine that this king with his army that's a forest standing right outside Jerusalem, that he's the greatest tree in their midst. He's the redwood. He's all the way up at the top. Everything else is just crouching around him. And he's there shaking his fist saying, I will conquer. I am great. Who can stand against me? And God comes along with a big old axe and just lops the top right off. Down it goes. And God's saying, that's what I'm going to do. That's what I'm going to do. It hasn't happened yet in the story. Chapter 37, 38, 39 is when it's going to happen. But he's saying way back here, that's what I'm going to do. The rest of the verse, same idea. The great in height will be hewn down and the lofty will be brought low. He will cut down the thickets of the forest with an axe and Lebanon will fall by the majestic one. Uh, you know, more language about uh, the territory of Assyria and how their empire will collapse. But for you this morning, to take something here, uh, the end of verse 33 is, is the spirit of this thing. Uh, that the great in height will be hewn down and the lofty will be brought low. I think it can maybe sound kind of trite to talk about how pride is a bad thing. I also think that talking about how pride is a bad thing doesn't usually stop pride. Kind of doesn't. Pride is something that, that each of us have in our, in our flesh, in, in the animal in us. There's some, there's some haughtiness. There's some I'm more important. Even people who uh, you know, think that they've sinned so bad, Jesus can't save them. They're so trapped in shame. It's still based on I'm more important. I'm so bad, Jesus can't save me. It's about how terrible I have been. We always have a version of this going on. And, and Christianity doesn't come along and say, now, you, you get off that high horse and figure it out or you're going to be punished. Although it does say that too. But to the Christian, it's, it's like you got off the high horse. You surrendered to Jesus already. You know he's the king, right? 
Now it's a matter of learning to hate the sin within you. That you see it. Oh, there's my pride. Oh, there's my arrogance. And you don't hide from it. You say, there, there, there's my pride. There's my arrogance. Jesus, did you see what a jerk I just wanted to be? Can you help me lower my eyes? Maybe not look down so much at everyone around me, but look to see them in their need. See them as, as who they are. See them as more valuable than myself. You pray this prayer knowing that like, you're not going to get there. <laughs> you're really not going to live from the morning you get up to the time you go to bed at night thinking of everybody else and never once of yourself. So stop measuring with that stick. And instead, just kind of hunger to see clearly and know that that means thinking less about yourself, less about the world power and what the world says greatness is, and just a little more about asking Jesus to, to do it for you. As he will give the Holy Spirit to those who ask, and this is without question at all, overpouring flowing down, pressed to the extreme, so that you have more to share with others. He will do this. And it will come through trial and travail and chastisement and discipline as to one who is a son, but trusting in Jesus Christ with all your heart, leaning not on your own understanding, in all of your ways acknowledging him, he's going to straighten your path. And that straight path means having eyes to see the other, the neighbor, the near one to you. Yeah. And for that then, to be part of a community in which the eyes are lowered from ourselves to the cross of Jesus. And thereby seeing others at the foot of the cross, knowing that we walk the same road. It's not a, it's not a hateful thing to, to fight your pride. It's a hard thing. It's not easy. But it's not a hateful thing. It's a beautiful thing. It's a beautiful thing to see clearly. And, and when you see clearly under Christ, you're going to see both how good he is going to be to you, even though it doesn't always feel that way. And then that can help you, well, be good to others as his gift to them as well. We'll get chapters 11 and 12 next week. In the name of Jesus, amen.